The Tom Woods Show, episode 1550. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, the self-taught Ron Paul curriculum, which I helped create, gives parents their mental health back and students a top-notch education. In addition to the traditional subjects, how about two years' worth of business, as well as a course on personal finance for teens, a course on public speaking, the kinds of stuff nobody learns anywhere, but which will give your students a major leg up. Plus, through my link only, get $160 worth of free bonuses when you join. That link is ronpaulhomeschool.com. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here, talking about a rather unusual topic today, namely the left-wing anarchist Emma Goldman. Michael Malice, our friend, has been reading her and reading about her and wrote to me about this, and we decided, what the heck, let's do an episode about it. So I read some of her work as well. We're going to talk about it right now in our usual haphazard, all-over-the-place style, but that's why you love the Michael Malice episodes. Michael, as you no doubt know, is a celebrity ghostwriter and a darn good one, television personality and an author in his own right, most recently of The New Right, A Journey to the Fringe of American Politics. You can catch him on the Gas Digital Network with his program, You're Welcome. Michael, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. All right. First of all, I just think it would be an interesting footnote for people to know that we're recording this at one o'clock in the morning because you and I are busy people. And I just did deadlifts too. (laughs) So perfect time. Yeah. Anyway, it's the only time we could make this work, and I'm going out of town, and so here we go. We're we're talking Emma Goldman. But before we talk about her, let's say a little something about anarchism, the, the history of anarchism, because there are a lot of people who listen to this podcast who consider themselves <laughs> anarchists from a private property standpoint. Wait a minute. There's a lot of people that listen to this podcast? This, <laughs> so very, <laughs> this very failed podcast? Very failed, extremely failed, <laughs> according to somebody I've heard. <laughs> It's not even in the Nielsen ratings. Yeah, see, now they listen just, you know, for the same reason you take a look at a train wreck, right? That's why they're tuning in, not for the content. And I'm the driver. (laughs) So, all right, number two guest uh, on the Tom Woods show. You Um, treat me like number two. (laughs) That's pretty, that's not bad. Let's talk talk about uh, this point that you want to make, which is namely that people who for example, think of themselves as anarcho-capitalists, are often contemptuous of people, let's say, who have a a left-wing take on anarchism, an anti-private property take on it, and they feel like these people are not anarchists at all. And whether they are or they aren't, the fact is they did come first. I mean, they were the ones who were using the term. Yeah, this, it really, you know how sometimes you'll hear a cover of a song and then you'll hear the original but because chronologically in your life you heard the original second, you think the original is the cover. So many, you know, ANCAPs, I, I see this happen constantly on Twitter, and it takes a lot to get me to cringe. And I cringe every time where they will be talking to these anarcho-communists or other kinds of anarchists, you know, more, more of the socialist anarchists, and they'll be like, LOL, you guys can't call yourselves anarchists. It's like, they were there first. You're the one who is basically stepping on their turf. Uh, there's a reason, you know, Rothbard called it anarcho-capitalism instead of simply anarchism. He was distinguishing it from his predecessors. So now you can easily make the argument 
that, you know, anarcho-communism wouldn't work in practice and so on and so forth. But to kind of appropriate their word comes often from a place of ignorance and embarrassing ignorance. Okay. Let me just finish. I think it's important for those who call themselves anarchists of any stripe to be familiar with all the different stripes. And that's fair enough. And people should be. And 99 times out of 100, I'm sympathetic to this kind of argument. And, and I even am sort of sympathetic right now. But I think what irritates me and what's motivating the brighter people on our side who take this position is that when they examine what the ANCOMs are saying, I think they're, they're engaged in a bait and switch. They say, oh, we're anarchists, so we're against the state. All right. Are you really, though? I mean, because if it turns out, like if it turned out that, yeah, they started using the term first, but when you peel back one layer of their onion, they actually want the state in another form, then, yeah, I I feel like taunting them, taking their term away because they don't deserve it. Absolutely. And if their position is something like, and by the way, there are a lot of different ways that you could try to conceive of how their society might work. But one of them is that you would have a kind of a common or democratic decision-making that would determine how production takes place in a particular firm. But given all the different decisions that would need to be made, unless we're all going to sit around at meetings for our entire lives, inevitably this will turn into some form of representation. Inevitably the iron law of oligarchy will take over and inevitably you will then have some kind of system that, yeah, I grant you they won't call the state. Oh, terrific. They're not using the word state. But for all intents and purposes, it will be a state. So, yeah, I do question that they're really anarchists. Well, Tom, that's an argument for against anarcho-capitalism also because it's saying, well, those private police forces will, you know, for all intents and purposes, be a state. But how is a private police force for all intents and purposes a state? Because it is – the anti-anarcho-capitalist argument, which I don't necessarily hold but I'm sure you are very familiar with, is, well, you'll have a natural monopoly. And this is the Robert Nozick argument, right? That if you have this anarchism, it's going to basically reduce itself to a minarchist state. So either way, we wind up with a state? No. What I'm saying is if you're going to – you look at an ideology, that's level one. And level two is let's suss out what this would look like in practice. But those are separate orders of analysis. In the same way – and people are very capable of cognitive dissonance. And the best example of this is conservatives with the Constitution, right? I stand by the Constitution. I stand by the Constitution. Well, what about Social Security? What about, you know, wars overseas? Well, well, so we can say if you are for the Constitution, it has either, Lysander Spooner, his great quote, it has either authorized such a government as we have had or been unable to prevent it. But these are separate issues and separate ways of looking at things. Well, to me, the issue is, my position is, I favor no initiation of coercion. Sure. And that's my position all the way through. Whereas I feel like their position is, yeah, we don't want some forms of coercion. I'm not, but- I'm not defending the incomes. All I'm defending is people knowing their history and not making idiots of themselves on Twitter, when someone who is informed about this history is being told you don't know what you're talking about, when they in fact do. 
And if you are making a fool of yourself in front of some crusty ANCOM, that's really embarrassing. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, but I feel like the crusty ANCOM has probably not, is probably, like a lot of ANCAPs, living in a bubble and needs to have it pierced from time to time by people saying, are you really sure that the set of ideas you are associating with anarchism is a stable equilibrium? I mean, because I, I think that's what the intelligent people are trying to say to them. No, 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 no. Well, I'm not talking about the intelligent people. I'm talking about the unintelligent people or the ignorant people who are often intelligent. And interestingly, Emma Goldman has a lot to say about ignorant people. Oh, man, that was some of the best stuff that we, you and I read. Oh, so, okay, so you have read those essays. Of course, yeah. Okay, you did your homework. When I am set to talk to Michael Malice at one o'clock in the morning, I make sure I'm prepared. Okay, <laughs> as, as prepared as you can get. <laughs> well, so can you start off by just telling people, uh, I mean, until I read these, I pretty much knew about Emma Goldman, that she was an anarchist of the left-wing variety. Yeah. She, was anti she uh, spoke out against the regime in the Soviet Union or in, in communist Russia. Yeah. But that was pretty much all I knew. Okay. So what else can we, I mean, like, first of all, roughly what, I mean, do you know her birth and death dates offhand? Yeah, they're actually wrong in her tombstone. Isn't that funny? Really? Uh, yeah. I don't know it offhand, but they're wrong. Th th that's a case of you had one job. <laughs> that's what a tombstone is supposed to say. Oh, I suppose I the name. So I don't know um, who's to blame. Is it the state or, or is it the market? It's, it's 1869 <laughs> to 1940. So- I'm going to make another point, and this is um, before we get to Emma Goldman, and you and I, let's suss this out because I think this is something that you know bears discussing. I think it would be really funny, Tom. You know, I'm a big troll. If we just discuss these kind of meta issues and never actually get to Emma Goldman. <laughs> I, I could easily see that. And then we'll have to do a part two where we actually talk about the thing we promised to talk about. <laughs> There's uh, NPCs, you know, people who are not really capable of critical thought. There's a lot of them on the Internet, uh, and they come in all stripes, and some of them wave the black flag just as much as everybody else. And part of NPC psychology is binary thinking, us versus them. And you see it all the time. Oh, this person's a racist. You can just throw them in trash. They can't say anything of value. Oh, that's just right-wing hyperbole. Oh, they're just a leftist. And then it's just like done, right? And – it's false and foolish to me to just preemptively dismiss someone because of their school of thought, especially when it's someone who in many ways is fighting the good fight. And I think she's a very, very mixed character, but this kind of preemptive like, oh, she's a commie, let's throw her in the trash. She was, as you just alluded to, probably the most effective anti-communist figure, certainly from the left, from the beginning. So she's extremely interesting and she is worth reading and knowing about. And I agree with you that it enrages me that we have people who have something valuable to say to us and something interesting to say of all persuasions. And yet almost everybody is so stuck in one way of thinking that it's almost heretical even to consider cracking open a book by such and such person. And the thing is, I know a lot of the people who, let's say, don't like me are just going to continue to live that way. But that's no reason for me to live that way. So when you said, I think you need to read this woman, I thought, all right, well, I mean, I, for some reason, have come to trust Michael. I think this will be worth my time. And it was worth my time. And a lot of it is going to be stuff people disagree with. But that's OK. 
let's just talk about what you just alluded to. So long story, um, she, in 1901, the, the first terrorists in America were like, you know, white and immigrants. So there was the Haymarket affair, a bomb went off, people were killed, including a cop. They rounded up seven anarchists. And at the time, anarchist really meant terrorist in many ways. Um, the song by the Sex Pistols, Anarchy in the UK, you know, I'm an anarchist, I'm an antichrist. The lyric means I want to blow up people. And you can imagine 1976 in Britain, hearing this from their children's radio, you know, everyone's freaking out with good reason. So they rounded up, you know, some random anarchists and one of them, Louis Ling, who I think is, it's, I mean, they were pro-violence. They were absolutely for violence. There's no question. And this is something that I think anyone who is a philosophical radical has to think through. I know Jason Brennan uh, just fairly recently wrote a book. I haven't read it, which was published. Have you had him on the show discuss this book? Not this book, but I'd like to get him on for this one. Yeah, he it was from an academic press, and basically he was making the argument for when it's appropriate to use force against the police. But that is a question that, you know, everyone, we like to pretend that's not an issue because America, you know, the police are nowhere near as bad as a police state. But this is, a you know, the question of liberty, like where you draw the line. So they rounded up these guys, put them on a, basically a show trial. And Louis Ling, if you look at photos of him, he looks like a, a Abercrombie model from 2019. It's insane. He's like the 1890s or 1870s, whatever it was. And he says, I couldn't have thrown that bomb. I was at home making bombs. So and his the speeches they gave uh, in this trial, like we re we reject the authority of this court. If you'd come at us with guns, we'll come at you with dynamite. Hang us like, you know, bring it on. And they were uh, hung. Louis Ling blew himself up in jail. He, uh, he snuck in an explosive. And a few years later, it, when it was clear they had nothing to do with this bombing, there was a monument built to them still there in the cemetery in Chicago. They were pardoned posthumously by the governor. And the slogan, one of their one of the men is on the monument says, uh, one, I'm going to mess it up a little, Tom. I, I forget the exact quote, but it is, one day the voices are silence will speak louder than the voices you strangle today. You know, this is what they're saying as they went up to the gallows. So Goldman was very inspired by this. And I think we see also, you know how like we laugh at these people who wear these Che Guevara shirts, right? Because it's like, you don't know what you're wearing. This guy was a just a wanton murderer. And very often what happens is violence becomes romanticized. And it happens with the armies. I mean, there's no better example. You know, World War II, you know, George Washington. These were bloody, bloody conflicts with lots of people dying. It's a lot prettier in the books than it is in real life, uh, which is why, you know, you and I and so many others are so anti-war. Anyway, so, you know, anarchism had this very, very understandably dark connotation in, in the States and especially in Europe. And in 1901, this guy, Leon Salgaz, I don't know how you pronounce his name, shot McKinley, McKinley. And when he's arrested, he says, you know, I'm a, I was influenced by Emma Goldman. So now she's on the lam because the guy said he shot her because uh, of her work. There was this idea that somehow there's this underground anarchist network who were trying to plot to kill the president because it can't be as simple as just a one random lunatic, right? Like that, like that would be very embarrassing. You had to have it be, okay, you know, something's, there had to be some big conspiracy. 
And when she was arrested, she says she sympathized with the shooter, that McKinley is not as clever as he thinks he is, that he's basically an idiot and a puppet of, you know, the corporations. And the quote, she was arrested for being associated with the president being killed. She says the police are making more anarchists than the most prominent people connected with the anarchist cause could make in 10 years. If they will only continue, I shall be very grateful. They will save me lots of work. So, I mean, the cojones on this woman, five feet tall, who's arrested, and she's like, for the murder of the president, and her line is basically, you know, screw the police. That It's just mind-boggling. And they had to let her go because she had nothing to uh, um, do with it. Uh, what were you going to say? I'm sorry. Oh, no, nothing. You you carry on. Because well, once, once you're done, I've got some things to amplify what you're saying. Sure. But the most important thing, I think, why people on our side should like her is after all this, during, you know, Wilson's presidency, they basically, and, and, and Teddy Roosevelt that started, they passed a law making it a crime to kind of preach these ideas. And they deported a ton of radicals, including her, and they sent her to Russia. And she went there and she thought, okay, this is going to be great. The revolution, we finally have, you know, kind of the new way we're overthrowing capitalism. And she gets there and all the anarchists are being rounded up and murdered. She sits with Lenin. She's like, we're about free speech. We're about the individual. And Lenin's like, well, you can't really have that in the transition period. So she gets out of the Soviet Union and she writes a book called My Disillusionment with Russia. And she went to Britain. And the quote was when she was there, as soon as she before she started talking, it was a standing ovation. And when she was done, dead silence, because she came, she goes, this is worse than the czar. This is the most brutal dictatorship the world has ever seen. This is not what I'm for. And she just completely denounced this kind of noble experiment. And the West did not want to hear it. She was the big voice from the left who had the credentials. And she spoke out and spoke truth to power far more than most people today. So I think she needs to get a lot of credit for that because one of the questions, I forget there's that essay by, by who, who wrote it, which is one of the most important essays I think ever written for by a former communist. And he goes, what did you know and when did you know it? At what point were you aware of the communist atrocities and when did you pretend it was okay? And she's back in what, the 20s? And she's saying, this is what's going on. So they didn't even have the option of playing dumb. And that's in large part thanks to her. I read a couple of the essays in her, what is the collection called? Anarchism and Other Essays, right? Correct. Okay. Uh, I'm going to link to that on the show notes page, tomwoods.com slash 1550. You can just read it for nothing. The second essay in there about majorities and minorities has a lot of interesting insights. It's, it's not really the one I wanted to talk about first, but just to back up something you were saying – it's interesting that she does not have a romantic view of the masses. No. To say it, to say the least. She has a, a view of the masses that actually I thought seemed kind of like your view of the, of the masses. And so she is not under the impression that it's just a small elite who are wickedly forcing the existing system on the masses. She's saying, look, if the masses would wake up and not be soldiers, policemen, jailers, and hangmen, we wouldn't be living under this system. It's precisely because they're going along with it. And that, in a way, echoes some of the libertarian analysis that I've heard, like Rothbard used to always say, that the political class is always a minority, 
and yet somehow it's able to get the majority to carry out its will. But then occasionally you get these cases like in the former Soviet Union where and, and the Eastern Bloc countries where the masses finally do just say we're not going to obey this minority anymore. Once they say we're not going to obey this minority, the thing falls apart. The trouble is they almost never say that, and so she does not romanticize them. Yeah, and that's the other thing I think people who are – you know, anarchists of like anarcho-capitalists would kind of get wrong. They assume she's kind of this anarcho-communist. So therefore she's going to venerate the working man and, and, you know, the mass man as opposed to the elites. And that essay, Carl Hess, who's an important historical figure, he was Barry Goldwater's speechwriter, who allegedly wrote Barry Goldwater's famous quote from the 1964 convention speech, extremism and defense of liberty is no vice. Moderation in pursuit of justice is no virtue. He later became an anarchist, and he said all the great things that are in Ayn Rand you can find in Emma Goldman. And that essay, I mean, if I crossed it out and wrote that it was Ayn Rand, I think a lot of people would believe it. It's It, it, it passes the sniff test because she's talking about how societies work. She's even worse than Rand in many ways. Or more, you know, uh, she says explicitly, the masses cannot reason. Even Rand doesn't say that. All right, we've got some other things that I'm not quite sure Rand would say. We're going to get to those in just a minute. All right, folks, Old Woods here has a life hack for you. We all have more books than we can possibly read, and I have the solution for you. And that is the amazing, unique Blinkist app. It takes the key takeaways, the really need-to-know information from thousands of nonfiction books, condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to, and thereby helps make you master of the universe. I like Blinkist because if I need to go somewhere that's 30 minutes away, during that round trip, I can consume four books. And that's when I use Blinkist the most, when I'm driving around, particularly when I'm driving my daughters around, I leave them somewhere, then I have an empty car, what am I going to do? Use Blinkist. A couple books I've listened to that I highly recommend you check out are The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss and Factfulness, 10 Reasons We're Wrong About the World and Why Things Are Better Than You Think. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books. All the books you want and all for one low price. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com woods and try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash woods to start your free seven-day trial. And you'll also save 25%, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash woods. Here's something I just want to share with you, just a quotation uh, that struck me because it sounds Rothbardian to me. She says, and and I don't know that, well, I mean, maybe, no, maybe, a, maybe a Randian would speak this way now that I think about it, but she says, the most absurd apology for authority and law is that they serve to diminish crime. Aside from the fact that the state is itself the greatest criminal, breaking every written and natural law, stealing in the form of taxes, killing in the form of war and capital punishment, it has come to an absolute standstill in coping with crime. Well, how about that? Yeah, so her paramour, Alexander Berkman, tried to kill Frick who was Carnegie's right-hand man, and he went to jail for many years of this. And it's kind of funny also, you know, the, the story of them, uh, Emma Goldman and Alexander Berkman, because they were young, they were radicals, and they thought, all right. And Marx had the same idea. One of the things that was funny about Marx in his lifetime, like he would try to get the workers to have a revolution, and they'd be like, we just don't want to have like 20-hour days, dude. Like, we don't want to overthrow the government. Just give us some, you know, family leave. 
And it like it drove him to distraction because he had this idea of the union of the working man, which did not relate to reality at all. And they kind of had the same thing. So Frick, I didn't realize this, those Pittsburgh steel mill strikes where, you know, it was very famous. You had the unions, you had Carnegie and the, and the steel mills. They brought in the Pinkerton guards and, and people lost their lives. The unions weren't even asking for raises. Frick was insisting they get a pay cut. And the union said, we just want to get paid the same. And he brought in that private police force. So Berkman goes to Frick's office, tries to murder him because he thought, all right, I'm going to do this. And the workers are going to get their consciousness and everything's going to be great. And they all denounced him, every single one. They're all like, what are you doing? We don't want to kill this guy. You're making him a martyr. The the closest anyone came to supporting him was saying like, oh, you would have made a martyr out of him. Everyone else were like, this is not what we're about. We denounce it completely. And Berkman and Goldman were like, what, what is going on? So it's, it's, they were very naive in that sense. But as a consequence, he served many years in jail. And she was one of the first voices condemning what happens in the prison system. And one thing she condemns, which everyone listening to this, I think, would agree, is at the time, all these prisoners were forced to work you know, all day. And all that they produced was basically sold by the state. So this was a de facto slave labor situation. And she's like, this is insane. And thankfully, that's been largely abolished. This whole matter of the the homestead strike, it's actually a hopelessly complicated thing. I actually have an episode where I talk about it. I'll link to it on the show notes page where I talk about this and some other episodes in labor history. But the gist of it is the workers had a contract with the plant that said that if the price of steel goes up, their wages go up. The price of steel goes down, their wages go down. It was a sliding scale. And you can understand why you would favor that because you'd think, well, price of steel going up means the, the plant is getting more profits. We should share in the profits. Well, okay, but the, the flip side of that is that if the price of steel goes down, so do your wages. So what they had was at, at $25 a ton, if steel went lower than that, wages stopped declining. So that was the the floor for wages. So the the thing they were arguing about was should the floor be at $25 a ton for steel or $22 and they went back and forth and eventually they settled on, you know, something like 23 and and that was about the end of it. But there were 3800 people working at the plant. The Amalgamated Iron and Steel Association represented 800 of these and they were the ones who were the most vocal about this and only 330 skilled workers were actually affected by this whole matter anyway it turns out but every single one of them went on strike so naturally there's suspicion well why would they all go on strike when almost none of them are really going to see any real difference with this and so this the suspicion was that intimidation there's a slight chance intimidation might have been used here so the pinkerton guards were brought on to try to get to the bottom of that and also to protect the plant And the Pinkerton guards did not, I mean, they are demonized in all labor history, but they did not open fire on people. They were fired upon. There was dynamite used against them. And finally, yeah, they, I mean, who wouldn't? I'm pretty sure one, at least one of them was killed right off the bat. So I think that the ANCOMs tend to have a, uh, a much too simple angels and demons description of, of uh, complicated episodes like this, but just FYI. Well, and they did. I mean, and Goldman and Berkman were the most guilty of what you just said, having angels and demons, because in their mind, Frick's a demon, we kill him, and then we become heroes. And even the labor union didn't agree with that. 
And interestingly, Frank Tausig, who wrote a tariff history of the United States in the 19th century, he was like a late 19th century economist. He said at the time in 1893, he said, judged by the scale of the market rate of wages for work of similar difficulty elsewhere, some of the men were largely overpaid. So that's the testimony of a contemporary economist. So this was not a matter of the iron fist of the capitalist is trying to take the bread from the mouth of labor. And, and it's not quite. Oh, absolutely. All right. But 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 anyway, anyway, I mean, I, I don't want to dwell entirely on this one episode because there are other things I want to extract from the, uh, the stuff I, that you and I read. I, I think what you're doing is very important because I think it is important for anyone who calls themselves an anarchist to understand the history and understand both perspectives. Uh, and, or if not both, there's many perspectives. And I think this, like Rand had this kind of mistaken claim that her ideas are basically sui generis, right? And she just deduced them herself and she didn't give very little credit for people who paved the way for her other than in her mind, uh, Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas. And the other thing that I find very useful in reading her is because a lot of it is, first of all, she's got a lot of great quotes. And you read it and you're like, oh, this is amazing. And a lot of it, she's out of her mind. But for me, I think it's very useful as an anarchist to familiarize myself with anarchists with whom I don't agree with much of the time to understand their perspective and to ask myself, okay, why are they wrong? If, if it's someone who's like a conservative or some progressive talking about, oh, we need the government to solve this, I know why they're wrong. But this person and Tom... I know we were talking about earlier about the ANCOMs and you scratched and they want the state. Having read her, she hates the state. She really, really, really hates the state. So if I have that Venn diagram with her, as many of the listeners do, at the very least, I'm like, all right, we have something in common. Why has she gotten the rest wrong? Well, you know, it's interesting. There's a passage here that gives us a little ray of hope about how she would want to arrange society, at least, at least for me. She says she's obviously unhappy with an extremely developed division of labor where people, instead of being a craftsman who make the whole shoe or the whole desk from scratch, are just engaged in mindless assembly line work from her perspective. Yeah. She says a perfect personality is only possible in a state of society where man is free to choose the mode of work, the conditions of work, and the freedom to work. One to whom the making of a table, the building of a house, or the tilling of the soil is what the painting is to the artist and the discovery to the scientist, the result of inspiration, of intense longing, and deep interest in work as a creative force. And so she says, that being the ideal of anarchism, its economic arrangements must consist of voluntary productive and distributive associations, gradually developing into free communism as the best means of producing with the least waste of human energy. Now, I'm stopping there. There's, the next sentence is the one that I like. So it sounds to me, at least, like she's saying that for the full flourishing of human life, for the full development of the human person, we need to have people's work be on the order of what the painting is to the artist and the discovery yeah. is to the scientist. It has to be, it can't just be sheer drudgery 10 hours a day or something. So first of all, my concern there is, I mean, I of course we all understand that, but on the other hand, maybe there is the point that in order to be able to support industrial-sized populations, maybe we can't have everything we want, and I don't know that she really reckons with that. But then she says, here's the sentence I like. She says, 
Anarchism, however, also recognizes the right of the individual or numbers of individuals to arrange at all times for other forms of work in harmony with their tastes and desires. So maybe she's saying, this is my vision for how it would be best for people to live, but I'm not going to tell absolutely everybody that they have to abide by my model. Yeah, and what she, when she's attacking capitalism, what she in many cases is attacking is what you and I would call corporatism, which is government in the pocket of corporations, you know, and using rent-seeking and other and lobbying to basically exploit and, and use all those tactics that they use, which you and I and everyone listening to this have nothing but complete disagreement with. So now let's see here. Um, yeah, see, then she says, actually, you know what? I want to move on to this one. Okay. Because, and, and when I say this one, I mean, I've got a whole bunch of these. I printed them out. Hear that? Nice. Yeah. This is her on Teddy Roosevelt. Oh. I, I, I was struck by this. Hell yeah. Because Teddy Roosevelt is loved by all the respectable people, then and now. She will have none of it. Uh, she, says, she says, the majority represents a mass of cowards willing to accept him who mirrors its own soul and mind poverty. That accounts for the unprecedented rise of a man like Roosevelt. He embodies the very worst element of mob psychology. A politician, he knows that the majority cares little for ideals or integrity. What it craves is display. It matters not whether that be a dog show, a prize fight, the lynching of a N-word, the rounding up of some petty <laughs> offender, the marriage exposition of an heiress or the acrobatic stunts of an ex-president. The more hideous the mental contortions, the greater the delight and bravos of the mass. Thus, poor in ideals and vulgar of soul, Roosevelt continues to be the man of the hour. Oh, <laughs> yikes. Yeah. And again, this is not long after she was nationally accused of causing Roosevelt's predecessor to be murdered. And so she, in other words, she still speaks with that level of intensity. Yes, and and accuracy. Yeah, yeah, that is a because that's pretty much how I feel about the guy. Of course, he was he was the first, like, well, maybe not the first, but he was a big step down from McKinley. I know what I want to do. There's, she's got this one about politicians, and this is. You know, it's it's hard for us, I think, sometimes to imagine somebody who has her views really, really being against the state because you think, right. well, who's going to carry out your plans? Well, can uh, I but, say one more thing? Yeah. Because you know how, like, all these lefties will look at us and be like, oh, you guys are just crypto fascists. And it's like, wait, wait, what? And it's the same thing. We'll look at people like Emma Goldman, not, not people who follow her today, but let's say a post her specifically and be like, oh, when push comes to shove. You know, she's basically Bernie Sanders or, you know, right. what I mean? she but is now, listen, not. No, in fact, listen to how she describes politicians and why she won't rest her uh, hopes for the future in them. She says, even were the workers able to have their own representatives for which our good socialist politicians are clamoring, what chances are there for their honesty and good faith? One has but to bear in mind the process of politics to realize that its path of good intentions is full of pitfalls, wire-pulling, intriguing, flattering, lying, cheating. In fact, chicanery of every description, whereby the political aspirant can achieve success. Added to that is a complete demoralization of character and conviction until nothing is left that would make one hope for anything from such a human derelict. 
Time and time again, the people were foolish enough to trust, believe, and support with their last farthing aspiring politicians only to find themselves betrayed and cheated. Yeah. Not very flattering. She has, there's a quote that's ascribed to her, which I don't know that she actually ever said, which is, if voting changed anything, they would make it illegal. Is that attributed to her? Oh, yeah. Oh, well, how about that? So I did I, not I, know that was her thing. Yeah, I, I, and there's another quote which she did not say. It's a paraphrase, which is, if I can't dance to it, it's not my revolution. Um, and this was her talking about how, you know, the progressives would ban dancing in different halls. And she's like, I'm not for this at all. So she's a very interesting figure, a very, uh, you know, um, David Friedman. Uh, I met him at Porkfest and, you know, Rand obviously did not think very highly of Milton Friedman and, and denounced him in the worst terms. And I asked him, you know, what he thought of Rand. And he said, Ayn Rand was brilliant courageous and wrong. And I think if anyone is brilliant and courageous and wrong, that says a lot about them. That that really puts them at the kind of the top of the heap. And I think Goldman, in many ways, you can really call her that as well. But that also means if you're reading someone who's brilliant and wrong, it's going to be extremely thought-provoking. Yeah, no kidding. Now, I think we need to, before we depart here, at least just spend a minute trying to figure out, all right, we, we get what she was against. Uh, she she didn't like Teddy Roosevelt. She didn't like the state. She didn't trust the the masses, the majority. She gave a lot of examples, by the way, of, of ways in which the majority oppresses the minority. She also talked about aesthetics. It's, it's interesting material. So what was her positive program? What is it that she wanted? She If she views the state as being the upholder of private property, then obviously doing away with the state means doing away with private property to some degree. Now, obviously, she doesn't mean everybody shares the same toothbrush. Right. I'm sure, like most people of her persuasion, she believes in personal property for things like that. But what exactly is she agitating for then? What What is her vision of society? How would you describe it? I think in, in the early, so she only really has like one book. It's no, I, I mean, there, there's her memoirs, Living My Life, and the two-volume memoir, My Disillusionment in Russia, this is anarchism and other essays. She was the editor for a long time until it was shut down by World War One of something called Mother Earth, which was an anarchist, I believe, monthly. And, and there's a collection of essays from that called Anarchy, um, which has a lot of her work. She never really put forward what this would look like. And this is why the criticism, which is often fair, is there's a certain naivete about this kind of anarchism where it's like, all right, if you abolish prisons, sure, it's fair let's suppose, for the sake of argument, that there will be a far fewer crimes. But <laughs> what do you do about those actual murderers? You know, what do you do about those people who prey on children? And they kind of dodge this issue. So, and she, in the beginning of that, you know, Anarchist Mother Essays, she basically is like, well, it's not really on us to say what it would look like because we can't imagine how like a flourishing society would look like. Sure. But, you know, you there, there's you really have to kind of that that's not going to cut ice with most people. So I think this is kind of her um, Berkman did, which I haven't read, wrote a book called like the ABCs of Anarchism. And I, I think he, you know, spells it out far more. But anytime I see these types try to explain what it would look like, it really seems to me uh, like a bit of a fairy tale. That was the impression I had. And we don't get a lot of detail. It's interesting 
it seems like it swings from one extreme to the other. Either with the utopian socialist, so-called, we get extreme levels of detail, like there are going to be 1,420 people yeah. in each community kind of thing. Right. Or we get nothing at all, and we're being unreasonable to ask for it. Right. So I don't know what I don't know what to make of that, but I find her interesting. And that, you know, I, I like reading somebody I can't predict. Yeah. I can predict what Lenin's gonna say, even though I find him fascinating. I know I know where he's going with things. Yeah. I can predict with, you know, what John McCain would have said. I can predict with anybody, most people writing in National Review or the New Republic. I know what they're gonna say. I know what Elizabeth Warren's take on the world is. I know what Bill Weld's take on the world. You know, it, none of this interests me at all. But because she's not, you know, the, one of these cookie cutter people, she was interesting to read. Yeah, and there's lots of things she did that are really indefensible. And I'm not going to sit here and say, uh, oh, you know, she's this angel. Uh, not at all. I'm just saying she's someone who is, I find, very, very thought-provoking and not at all what you would expect given who champions her today. All right, we're going to call it quits there. Tomwoods.com slash 1550, 1550. We'll have a link where you can download this book if you'd like to take a look at it. Of course, you're going to be listening to Your Welcome, the Michael Malice program over on uh, Gas Digital Network. I'll link to all Michael's stuff. I always do that. I got his website, books, all this stuff, programs that he does. All this stuff will be linked at tomwoods.com slash 1550. And Michael, thanks a lot. Now, time to go to bed. And that is our week of episodes here on The Tom Woods Show. Next week, it's Gene Epstein week. There is nobody, and I mean nobody on earth, no libertarian anywhere who doesn't like Gene Epstein. If there is, that is just a terrible person. What else can we say? That's a terrible person. Gene is a tremendous thinker, a very important figure in our world. And interestingly, as he gets older, he gets even more energetic. I don't know how this is possible. So Gene is going to be occupying all five Tom Woods Show episodes next week. So make sure you subscribe over at tomwoods.com slash Apple, and I'll see you then. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.